Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Nick Freund, founder and CEO of Workstream, an analytics platform that's raised $7 million in funding. Nick, thanks for chatting with me today. Of course, Brett. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building there at Workstream, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Sure. So I'm Nick. I'm the founder of Workstream.io, as you mentioned. And uh, yeah, I've worked in tech for... Uh, pretty much my entire career, all the way back when I was a uh, analyst uh, right out of college at Tesla in the Bay Area, where, I, where I'm originally from. So I, I worked there for four-ish years. And then I, after business school, ran operations at a seed stage and then later growth stage company here in New York City called the Better Cloud. And more broadly, yeah, I live in New York now. I'm a father of three children, two of which were born since we started the company. So it's been an interesting few years. That's amazing. Now let's zoom in a bit on your time at Tesla. What year did you join Tesla? Yes, I joined Tesla right after undergrad. So it was early 2008. And yeah, very interesting time. Financial crisis was setting in. And this was right when I joined was right when Elon was putting his like last reserve PayPal capital uh, into Tesla to save it. And so it was a scary time where the results of, of Tesla was was very much still in doubt. And how much of that was communicated with you and the rest of the Tesla team? Did everyone know that there was you know, this potential of failure or what was it like? Yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, we definitely knew. I mean, my first weeks, so I was I was an analyst at Tesla, and I, I ended up running analytics and and finance for the Tesla Roadster Model S program. So I was very aware of what the financial state of the company was at the time. And literally, my first job in the first week was to help calculate severance for the thirty percent of employees that were laid off in my first week on the job. And so it was a it was a very evident time. And everyone knew that, like, look, we had to get the roads into production, we had to make it profitable, or the company was just not going to survive. And it was not an environment, it was kind of an environment similar to this environment. Obviously, Mm -hmm. not every environment is the same, but it was at a time it was not easy at all to raise capital. And what was it like, you know, your interactions with Elon Musk, or his interactions with the rest of the team? And then how did you perceive Elon Musk at the time? Was he looked up to and admired in the same way that he is now? Or has that changed? Did he really get that legendary status over the last maybe like five years, would you say? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely changed. I mean, first off, he wasn't in the CEO of Tesla when I joined. I mean, he was the chairman and he was the biggest investor. And, you know, he's now, you know, he's like the co-founder and the, and the CEO, but he was really like the founding investor, highly, highly engaged like chairman. Mm-hmm. And so it was only like eight months after I joined that he took over the CEO role just because the company was in such dire straits. And so he just needed to be hands-on. And so it was different. I mean, he definitely didn't have like the widespread recognition that he does today as being arguably, if not like clearly the best entrepreneur of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just look at his track record and what he's done. But when you were in a room with him, you know, or dealing with him, I mean, he was, I mean, he was, the way he is today, just 
brilliant and understands every aspect of the business and also is not someone who really cares that much about what conventional thinking is. He kind of thinks that's anathema, actually. Uh, and so all the elements of who Elon was were there, but the big difference was Tesla was a company that was on the brink of failure. SpaceX was in a very different spot. So he was one of the kind of PayPal mafia, PayPal founders. Um, he wasn't yet you know, the richest man in the world. And from your time at Tesla, is there like one lesson that you really walked away with, would you say? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of lessons to walk away from Tesla with. Now, I would say one that I think sticks with me through all of my experiences. And I think, you know, being a founder of a, of a company now is, is just how willing you have to be to take on risk, right? And risk in every way, shape, and form. And I think part of the reason Elon has been so successful is they've been able to push the boundaries in so many different ways. And we were a risk-loving environment at Tesla. And so I'm always pushing my team and folks that I work with to like, hey, we need to be taking more risk. We need to be moving more aggressively. Nice. That's amazing. And one question we like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as an entrepreneur, is there a specific book that you've read that's had a major impact on you? And, and this can be a business book or it can also be a personal book as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, I read a lot, actually. And so there's a lot of books that have influenced me. I think if you're looking at a book about being a founder or a technologist, I think both From Zero to One by Pierre Thiel is amazing, as well as The Hard Thing About Hard Things. On a personal note, I think one of my favorite books of all time is the autobiography of Malcolm X and just the the character arc and the, the personal learnings uh, he went through. Uh, throughout his entire career to become in life to become who we now know as Malcolm X is pretty amazing. Is that like a thousand page book as well? I feel like all the autobiographies that I want to read end up just being so long and it seems like such a big commitment. No, I mean, it's actually, uh, I mean, it hits his autobiography and it was partially ghostwritten, but I think it's like 300 pages. I read it when I was in middle school. So it's definitely an approachable book. It's not, uh, you know, Titan, the biography of John Rockefeller, which I definitely recommend if you want a thousand page book, but it's uh, a bit definitely a, a different beast as you're, as you're mentioning. Yeah, I did Titan on Audible and it was 32 hours long. And I was like seven hours in and it's like, then John went to kindergarten. Like, holy crap, this is going to be a long, uh, long day reading this, a long time reading this. Most definitely. Now let's talk about Workstreaming and what you're building there. So take us back to the origin story behind the company. Because I, I know that you mentioned there that it has you know, it ties into your time at Tesla. So what's the origin story? And then what's the high level pitch that you make to customers? Yeah, I mean, so the origin story of, of Workstream IO is born of my experiences as both an analyst and then an operator. And so I was an analyst at Tesla. I felt a lot of acute pain points around how I worked with the kind of operations and manufacturing teams that I supported. So again, I supported the Tesla Roadster manufacturing and the Model S manufacturing operations team. So these are like the teams that were building our cars, building the factories, taking them to market. That was their analytical support. So there's lots of back and forth, lots of analytical artifacts that were being shared and et cetera, et cetera, as I was collaborating with them and really just trying to help enable them and support them in, in doing their job and, and bringing analytics greater to bear. Uh, and then later on, I kind of became the operator person because I was just so inspired by watching those teams bring cars, our cars to market. I just got really obsessed by the idea of creating products, the act of creation, and so then I, I became an operator at a SaaS company, an infrastructure company called Better Cloud. And I was no longer the analytical support. I was on the other side. 
but I worked really closely with that team and I've always been very, 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 very data driven. Um, and so I felt a lot of these pain points around analytics and kind of business people, like their workflow and the ways they collaborated work together. And I got to a point where I was like, I can't believe nobody has made this experience better. Um, and this whole experience is, is really fragmented in a lot of different ways. And someone needs to build something much more elegant that kind of brings all of these the different aspects of uh, collaborating on and leveraging analytics operationally together. And so that was what obsessed me enough to say, hey, this is something that nobody has pursued. Like, let me go ahead and pursue it. I believe that I have a unique take on this. And, and so to take us to the second part of your question, you know, Workstream IO, what are we? What we're calling a data knowledge management platform. And ultimately what it, it helps do is allows teams to bring together disparate analytics assets across any system, be a one-off spreadsheet, a dashboard that might live in your business intelligence solution, data that lives in an operational system like Salesforce. So there's all of these disparate places that teams consume data. And so we're giving them a single access plane for that. So we allowed them to do that. And then a lot of our use cases are around enabling the organization on how to use these things and how to incorporate them day to day as a sales manager, as an operational leader. And so that's the somewhat uh, quick elevator pitch to Workstream IO and what we do. But what's truly unique about it is it's all directly integrated with the analytics tools that teams already use. And why do you think no one had built a solution like this? And, and why did no one solve this problem? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple pieces to that. And I think a lot of that unfolds into the like trends that we've seen over the last 10 years. And they're like, well, why is this moment unique, right? So I think the first one is over the last 10, 15 years, there's just been this explosion in analytical tools that teams use. So if you were wound 20 years ago, maybe you use something like Tableau for business intelligence and you use Excel for like one-off ad hoc analysis. And those are tools that are still used in many organizations. But there's all of these new categories, right? So there's like product analytics tools like Amplitude. Uh, there's been an explosion uh, in the adoption of SaaS products. There's data and reporting that lives natively in all these SaaS products. There's new types of tools that are being introduced into environments for ad hoc analysis. So the rise of modern browser-based analytics notebooks, as an example. So there's all of these different uh, analytics tools for all of these different jobs to be done. And in many cases, companies are not just leveraging one, uh, tools across each one of those categories, but in big enterprises, they're leveraging multiple tools within each category. So anyways, there's this huge sprawl of analytics tools uh, and assets that is increasingly becoming a problem. So I think that's the first reason that this problem is becoming more acute and is something new that should be solved now. So that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is when you just look at the trend in data and analytics, and I'm not the first person to say that 20, the 2020s is going to be the decade of data, you know, there's just more acknowledgement and investment in uh, analytics teams. And the result of that is there are more people throughout an organization that are leveraging analytics as part of their team. And so there's a lot more consumers of data. So you've got more different types of analytics assets and more people consuming them in an organization. And so these pain points, which might have been acute or somewhat acute 20 years ago, are very, very acute today. And so I think that's all of the reasons why customers today are interested in a solution like this and 
why it can solve pain points that they feel um, in their day to day. And then, of course, there's like the underlying technologies. And because of the shift to the cloud and the openness of kind of all of these modern platforms, we just have the capability today to build a really integrated and elegant system in a way that just was not possible 10 years ago. So it's really the confluence of workplace behavior and adoption of analytics assets, as well as the evolution of the underlying technology. And you mentioned something there about jobs to be done, which I've been fascinated by for a couple of years now. Could you talk us through how you identified those jobs to be done and and just what your approach was there? I think it's super valuable for founders to understand that approach. Yeah, of course. I mean, so I think the way I think about jobs, there's like jobs to be done. There's kind of two vectors of it for us. So first off is there are these different analytics tools that people use. And we don't believe we're building an analytics tool. We believe we're building a workflow tool around the job to be done that is analytics. So like when I think about our job to be done, it's workflow around like analytics, but that's separate from like, hey, you've got maybe five categories of analytics tools, each of which is good at a specific job to be done, right? So like a business intelligence solution, the job to be done there is like dashboarding as an example, right? Or the mm-hmm. a product analytics solution like Amplitude, the job to be done is helping product and engineering teams know how people use like their product. Or Salesforce reporting, my job to be done is like, hey, there's a quick and easy way for like a sales team to understand like sales pipeline or churn or whatever it is. So anyways, you have all of these analytics tools with their specific jobs to be done. For us, what we do is we integrate with those tools and we help with the workflow, right? So that's everything from like, well, how do I discover all of the assets that have been created around customer churn, right? Or whatever topic that user is looking for. Or, okay, now I have found this thing and I'm a sales manager, how do I leverage this report? How do I understand it, right? So there's like an enablement job to be done. And then finally, there's a, well, now maybe I have other questions about it. And now we can have integrated workflows that are all kind of built in part of that same experience. And so for us, the job to be done is the workflow of facilitating, it's kind of like the operationalizing the analytic decision, so to speak, and doing that kind of from end to end for kind of each one of those jobs to be done. And for us, because of course we can't do everything, a lot of the early jobs be done that we're focused on are kind of these enablement, uh, discovery enablement use cases for go-to-market teams uh, leveraging their analytics assets. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And in terms of traction and adoption, just so we can have an idea of what that looks like, are there any numbers that you can share? Yeah, and so we opened up into a public beta earlier this year. And you know, since we've opened up, we've had hundreds of companies come in and adopt our kind of the freemium version of our product. So that's been a you know a, a huge sea change in kind of the trajectory of our company and our business. So anyone who's listening who's interested, please go ahead and check out our free product at workstream.io. And then you're looking at kind of dozens of clients who are on the other side of large deployments and have formalized relationships with us. So are you taking a PLG approach for your go-to-market or what does the go-to-market strategy look like? The honest answer is it's evolving and we're figuring it out. But look, we believe in the power of PLG. And if you think of workflow products, they're really ones that are kind of built for that, right? There's single-player use cases for uh, any type of workflow product. In our case, it's like, hey, now here's a single place for me to go find all my analytics, right? But these types of tools, and our specifically becomes more and more powerful the more and more folks in your organization use it. And so we want to make it really easy for anyone to find our product, install it, start to get value out of it really, really quickly without a lot of effort. 
And then once organizations see adoption and more folks are using it, then it becomes a more of a natural conversation for something to uh, enter into a more of a formal relationship with us. So anyways, that's the big plan and we're starting to see success there. But I think what's really interesting about PLG products in general, especially the ones that are creating new categories, is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach to PLG, right? And every company has had it in somewhat a different way. And if you think of iconic product-led companies from Atlassian, Slack, to Dropbox, the way some of that PLG worked is actually very, very different. And so we're kind of finding within the vision, what are the places in which we might need to be applying more traditional like sales or enablement tactics as we engineer that fully refined experience. And it's as much an art as it is a science. It makes a lot of sense. And you've mentioned my, uh, my trigger word there, uh, category creation or trigger phrase. So let's talk about category creation. So what is the category that you're creating and why does that category need to exist? Yeah, so we're calling it data knowledge management. And it's kind of what I've been describing our solution set does, right? But data knowledge management as a category helps teams consolidate their analytics assets and and workflows and ensure that all of it's happening directly in context with each other. And why it matters, I would just say in general, look, teams are make huge investments in both their analytics like technologies and people, as well as like all of their operational teams. And we're helping them get a lot more out of those massive investments. You can spend all the money you want in the world on building out the best data stack possible. Um, but if you can't then enable your go-to-market team on how to use that and leverage it in day-to-day decision-making, like you're not going to be successful as a business. So we really believe that the you know analytics, it's the nerve center of every organization. And if it's not, it should be. And uh, where it has not been, it's more often not these interpersonal workflow challenges that are uh, the reason. And no one's really focused on those problems before. And so that's why we're just so passionate about what we do in this new category that we're pioneering. And, you know, I think every founder today aspires to create a category. That's the hot, sexy thing to do these days. But obviously, creating a category is very difficult and it can take a lot of money. It can take a long time. So what are you doing to prepare for that journey? And what types of tactics are you deploying to really build the category and educate the market so they know that they need a category like this? Yeah. I mean, I'll answer your second question, but like, first off, I mean, I actually, to your point, I think category create, I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly hard, right? And what's really interesting, I think, hard and tempting as a founder is you look at a lot of products that are out there that see very, very quick success. And they're actually not the cat, like they're not the category creators. They're the folks who are building a better mousetrap, right? or the fast followers, or whatever that is. And in a lot of ways, that's the easier path, right? Or the higher you know, NPV path, so to speak. And so it, it takes a bit of crazy, I would say, in general, to be a founder and an entrepreneur. And I do think it takes like a little bit even... It's even more crazy on top of that to be like, oh, wait, we should actually go out and, and do something as nuts as try to create something that never existed before. And you know, for me... I think part of my sickness there is like I started my career working for Elon Musk and we were trying to create electric cars, high performing electric cars that people would spend $150,000 on. And so like that was my frame of reference for what amazing founders did. And I don't judge any founder who doesn't want to create a category, but uh, it's just not in my blood and it's not what like makes me wake up 
every day. Um, so anyways, I love that word that all you do is talk about category creation with founders, but it's just another level of crazy on top of the already founder crazy. And I'm using crazy there, obviously with love. Sorry, I'm trying to remember what the second part of your question was after I went on a long diatribe about category creation. <laughs> it was around tactics. So it was what tactics are you using to you know, really get the market to or create that market demand for this category that they don't know they need yet? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. This is honestly where we're spending a lot of time right now, like as a team talking about, like what are the big tentpole things that we need to be doing in 2023 to do that, to define the category? And look, I mean, a couple of tactics I'll mention that we're investing in right now. We are doing a it's not really a podcast series, but we're it's a video series and I'm doing discussions. And they're kind of like this type of discussion, right? But the format is me, a technologist or like a, a leader in the analytics space. So like someone who's a thought leader, like smarter about like analytic solution than I am, and then like a customer. And we we kind of explore the problem area, right? And so within data knowledge management, there are like three big like sub-problem areas. The first is kind of the idea of data asset sprawl and fragmentation in like data consumption. That's the first like kind of big problem area. The second problem area is kind of tribal knowledge around your data and that it kind of lives in all of these like one-off places and it's very ephemeral. And then the third is that like workflows between teams, specifically we need data teams and the business teams are just broken, right? And, you know, a number of questions there becomes, well, why three problems? And the answer is like the solutions to those problems all work together and reinforce each other, right? And so that all that rolls up into the data knowledge management. Anyways, to go back to directly to your question, we're spending a lot of time talking and trying to get social proof from folks about each one of those different problem areas. And so don't trust us, like trust these much smarter people than us who feel these problems day in, day out. And so we're starting with that and we're trying to package that up in media formats that are compelling and innovative and new. And then we can leverage that content in a lot of different ways and into like ultimate guides for each one of those different problem areas, like subtopics about the solution set. And so anyways, we're getting started on some of that stuff. But if you think about like what our content roadmap looks like for the next six months of next year, it's mm-hmm. all about from high level tentpole content on multiple different formats to more long tail content about solutions and even features like uh, just putting it all out there and making it super transparent. So I would say that's the first thing. And like anything, we'll, we're going to do this and we'll we'll test it. And we'll see what works and we're going to iterate from there, right? But I think you the first step is this, it's getting bold. And again, it's getting loud. And it's not just trusting your own voice, but it's putting the other voices out there for folks to listen to and trust. You know, beyond that, like, I'm not going to argue I have some crystal ball on the channels to amplify that, right? I mean, I think those are all of the the classic marketing channels that a B2B company would invest in. But we're starting with uh, kind of defining and evangelizing the category. And then we believe we can, we can leverage that uh, in a number of different ways to generate awareness and or, quite frankly, like tactical customer pipeline. Nice. That's amazing. Something else to ask on the category side. So from my talks with VCs, who I, who I bring on the podcast quite a bit, yeah, they seem to be split. Some of them are very scared of a founder coming in and saying, I want to create a category. And some, that's like the sweetest thing you could ever say to them. So in your early conversations with VCs, 
Were you talking about category creation from day one, or did that develop a little bit later on in the journey? You know, we were, but I don't think in my early investor conversations, I was as bold to say, hey, this is a completely new category, it doesn't exist. We did use analogies about other solutions that were out there that had done similar things. And we would talk about like why this was similar to that and why an approach like ours could work. So there's like companies that are that are taking similar approaches, but for different personas, right? And for different jobs to be done. And the long, like you can call it what you want, but it's like workflow for a specific persona, for a specific job to be done. And so we talked about that and I think that was good and it was it was helpful in framing the problem. But I do think it would have it would have been better in the earliest days to have just been like not only honest, but also uh, honest with ourselves that like, hey, this was actually a category creation undertaking from the beginning. And so just to like get ourselves ready for it. And something else that you mentioned there at the start of the interview is that, you know, from your time at Tesla and, and seeing how Elon Musk works is you now push your team to take risks and take big risks. What would you say is the biggest risk that you pushed the team to take so far? Ooh, the biggest risk to take. I mean, first off, it's, it's convincing people to join you from day one, right? I mean, convincing your first employees, convincing your co-founder to come and join you on a crazy journey where the outcome is going to be in doubt for a long period of time. I mean, that's huge, right? Especially people with families or with kids, right? I mean, you really, you got to get people on board with the, the risk of, of coming in and, and, and going from zero to one. So that, I would say that's probably the biggest risk so far that I've gotten people to take. Look, I think more broadly, and this is more of a generic statement, these are not the types of risks that Elon is willing to take are amazing. I mean, look, he just bought Twitter for $42 billion. Um, but, you know, for us, there's an aspect of moving really fast. And that means that we can afford to do things with our product or do things with our business that we know are going to break later. And it's just instilling in everyone that, hey, it's okay. We know that this stuff is going to break. We're making these decisions intentionally. And so we talk about kind of those risks. And it's the, hey, if we, if we get bogged down in de-risking everything, that's actually going to be the biggest risk of all because we won't make forward progress. So no great one example there, but definitely for an early stage founder, just getting people to join you in the journey is a big one. <laughs> yeah, I agree about that. I agree on that. Last question here for you. If we zoom out into the future, what would you say is the three-year vision for the company? I think we look back three years from now, I would love to be back on your show talking about how we've created the category and how this is now a, you know, amazingly recognized, indispensable solution for pretty much every business out there that has a data team, which really should be most businesses at this point. And so we have like accomplished our goal, which is made everyone aware. And then of course, we've built a great business around it. Ultimately, like what are great businesses? They're businesses that have a product or service that customers absolutely love and they could not live without, right? And so for us, it starts with the customer all day long, every day. There are like guiding light for our product and how it evolves. And we have evangelists and folks who love our product today. We want a lot more of them. We want tens of thousands of these folks. Um, and we want tens of thousands of companies uh, that are that are working with us. And so, look, I think the future is 
is really bright for us. And I actually, I do think that these problems of category creation and evangelization are some of the biggest challenges we'll work on in the next 12, 24, 36 months. And something you mentioned there that every organization should have a data team. At what stage of maturity do you see them forming a dedicated data team? Yeah, I mean, I will avoid using kind of venture capital like series names or descriptions, but I would generally say if you're a hundred person company and you don't have a data team or analytics team, you really should be looking at investing in one, depending upon the organization, a very operationally intensive one. Sometimes they'll invest in that earlier, but it's normally as you're crossing over that hundred person threshold, uh, starting to get into what you quote unquote call like a middle market company and or a kind of a growth stage company that you start to see these teams really becoming ubiquitous and uh, indispensable. And I think one of the biggest challenges for companies in general is that there's just a a big gap between supply and demand with uh, competent and capable uh, data professionals. And so most companies recognize this and they they want to invest in it. And it's just a matter of finding uh, the right talent to do so. So it sounds like a very similar opportunity that Gamesight had. I don't know if you followed their category creation mm-hmm. journey, but what they did is they observed that customer success was a team that was starting to grow. Um, you know, There were more and more organizations that were building a customer success team, but no one was really championing for them and celebrating the profession. And they were just very, very underserved. And then they embraced that team and really pushed to get more people to have that title. And then they obviously rode that to all of their success. So it sounds like something very similar for you with data teams. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, it's similar. And right? I mean, I think I'm not the first person to recognize the importance of a data team, right? And I don't know if Gainsight was that either. You know, Gainsight certainly did a great job of evangelizing it, though, right? But I think there's some interesting analogies there for sure. Um, but I think what Gainsight or any category creator has in common with us is there's some big change that they've recognized that might have just only started um, and they're trying to help facilitate that change. Yep, totally agree. Awesome, Nick. Well, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, so follow me on LinkedIn, please. I'm just, you know, Nick dash from dash workstream on LinkedIn. If you plug me in there, um, also feel free to check out workstream.io and follow along on our blog. And through the, the kind of those two channels, we kind of promote any of the content I've been mentioning around what we're doing and why we think it's important. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to share what you're building and talk us through your category creation journey. It's really exciting to hear and we wish you the best of luck in executing on this vision. Thanks, Brett. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, let's keep in touch. Absolutely.